Well, welcome to The Full Life. We are so glad you have joined us today for this program. I'm very excited about this program today because we are going to be discussing a subject very near and dear to my heart, and that is the nation of Israel, the conflict that's currently going on in there, the current crisis. And I know there's gonna be a lot of incredible information that's gonna help you to live a fuller life. Welcome to a new episode of The Full Life. Today's topic is a very timely one and a very important one to understand. And we are so honored and blessed to have both Jenny, as you know, is a is a pastor of a Hebrew Roots Church, and we have her here every week. But we have an, all, another dynamic guest with us, and we're really going to go into the history and the causes of what's going on with Israel and Palestine currently. We look forward to giving you that information. But first, as we always do, we start off with an encouraging word for all our viewers out there, and today's will come from Hank. So for today's encouraging word, I was just really, really struck by something that happened to me this past week. Um, there's two things that I think are really, really important to kind of flow with this story. The first one is um, most of us who grew up in church, we grew up singing this little chorus, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. However, I think most of us kind of forget about that when we grow older. You know, we think of Jesus as the light of the world. And that's awesome, you know, because he is the light of the world and him, there is no darkness at all. Um, in him, we have faith and life and love and access to the Father um, and even the Holy Spirit. So I think Jesus is the light of the world. But I think one thing we forget is that Jesus himself, thinking about us in Matthew 5, 14, says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So in light of the light of the world that we're called to be, I had a, a really, really fun, productive meeting with a 10-year-old from my congregation. Um, she is um, very, very passionate about not only her faith, but caring and loving her neighbors. And so she's noticed that in the season um, of Ramadan, you know, one of her best friends and neighbors was fasting. And so she was really, really um, talking to her parents and concerned about, well, so she's so tired, she can't play, or she won't play with my dog. And she had all these questions about not only faith, but her big thing uh, at the end of our conversation is she basically asked me, I want to be a good Christian, but I want to be a good friend too. How can I do both? And I was so impressed by this young lady because one, um, when I meet with adults, they don't come with as hard questions about you know Christian and Muslims and what does it mean to love your neighbor? And they also don't come with a notepad. So she was sitting there taking notes, which just you know warmed my heart. But at the end, what we talked about was we got to this verse and we got to the idea that a lot of us think it's our job to quote unquote save people when scripturally, you know, it's the Holy Spirit that convicts and turns our mind to Jesus. It's God the Father who made the plan for our salvation. And it's Jesus who lived, died, and rose again and was raised again. So that's how a person is saved by believing that, you know. Our job is to be the light of the world and to, to serve and to love in a way that it'll pull other people to God. So what I challenge her to do is, what does it mean to be a friend? You know, what does it mean to be someone that um, her friend can trust, someone that they can talk to, and someone that she knows that deeply loves her? And I also told her that there will be opportunities to share her faith and to talk about differences in her faith. 
and to just pray for herself that when those opportunities come, she can, you know, be able to to not only have an answer ready, but to have a, a thing that she can say or do to point her friend to Christ. So I really, really love this story because it was a reminder to me that in loving my neighbors, I will have people who are very, very different than me, um, but it's not necessarily my job to go out and save them, but it is my job to be light and to point out because light only shines best in the dark and to remember that Jesus himself has now left it to us to shine our light so others may see and glorify our Father in heaven and hopefully come to a saving knowledge of him as well. So as this 10-year-old inspired me, I hope and pray she inspires you to go out and love your neighbors. Thank you. And as always, we invite you to follow the show on our social media handles. We are on TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Yes, we have it all. So please follow us, stay engaged with us, send us anything so we can encourage you to live a fuller life every day. And now let's turn to today's topic. Uh, of course, we have seen it in the news. We've seen we've seen videos and, and footage uh, that's coming from that region. And we felt it was too important to not do a show about it today. So we are so honored to have, again, I'll bring Jenny and Carolyn back on. We'll start with that and welcome them back in. Of course, we always know that we have Jenny, but I wanna also introduce today's guest to the program. Reverend Dr. May Elise Cannon is the Executive Director of Churches for Middle East Peace. She is an ordained pastor in the Evangelical Covenant Church. Previously, Cannon's ministry and professional background includes serving as the Senior Director of Advocacy and Outreach for World Vision U.S. and many other pastoral and ministry positions. She earned doctorates in history and spiritual formation. Her Ph.D. focused on American history with a minor in Middle Eastern Studies from the University of California, Davis, focusing her dissertation on the history of the American Protestant Church in Israel and Palestine. Thus, I was so grateful for her taking some time today to be with us. Please welcome Reverend Dr. May Elise Cannon. Yes. Welcome. Hello. Wow. Nice to meet you. I love the title of your show, The Full Life. I believe God desires that for all people on the earth. We do too. And that's what we strive to give people in every show as we go through different topics. And I'm sure today will be no different. And as we begin today's discussion, I can certainly say that uh, everyone's heart is for the people of the region, whether they're Israelis, Palestinians. Um, we care about the life that is in the region. We care about protecting the life in the region. Uh, we care about, you know, because God cares about it. And also we share that we, do, we delineate between Palestinians and the group Hamas. Hamas is, is a terrorist group. Hamas is, a, is not the Palestinian people. Um, and we wanna make that distinction clear right off the fact. We, are, we do not condemn the Palestinian people themselves. We condemn the actions of Hamas. Um, and with that groundwork, that groundwork stated, I wanna begin today's discussion. I just wanna say I'm so excited to be here today because just like all of you watching, I feel like I'm gonna learn so much because I'm right. um, excited to see you, doctor. And then of course, Jenny, you just always have my heart. I love to listen to you speak anytime. And I'm just excited to hear for you share a little bit on the history of the Palestinian region. For those of us who are maybe just getting to understand this, you know, just take us, help us explain it a little bit like 101, you know? <laughs> 
before I was ever involved in anything with Israel, um, I used to always, you know, growing up in America, you heard about the Palestinian conflict, you heard about the PLO, you know, and I, I never understood it. And nobody really ever explained it. It was sort of like either you were for the Jewish people or you were for the Palestinians, like nobody kind of dug into this. And so I think a lot of Americans or people around the world think that a bunch of Jewish people just moved into the nation of Palestine and kicked a bunch of Palestinians out and said, we're taking your country from you. And I, I think that's the sort of narrative because it's simple and uh, it's people just don't dig any deeper. And so I looked into a bit of the history here, you know, to understand a bit of this, to say this, um, Palestinian people in the past have been Jews, Gentiles, have been Greeks, have been, in fact, Jesus could have been considered a Palestinian, okay? Because Palestine was a region. And around 132 BC, somewhere between 132, 135, there was major conflict. The Jewish people fought for their land, all right? Mm -hmm. They fought to not be occupied. Because they won, Hadrian comes in, the Romans are in control and they say, we don't want that to happen again because now they're occupying. What can we do to disassociate the Jewish people from this land? And what is the thing they did? They removed the title Israel. Hmm. So no longer was the area called Israel. And you got to understand that that was the entire purpose of Hadrian in naming the region. He named the region uh, Palestinia. Okay, so this was a region, and that region encompassed areas of Jordan. It wasn't just Israel. There were several areas. It was a region, and it stayed a region. But you got to understand from the very beginning that the purpose of that was, was to disassociate the Israeli people, the Jewish people from their land, so they wouldn't fight for it. There's something about when you call something oh, yeah. by a name. There's an identity. Yeah. There's an identification, mm -hmm. and that was meant to stop that identification. And, you know, in 70 AD, of course, the diaspora happens. The Jewish people spread throughout the world. I say all that to say there was always a remnant, though, of Jewish people, of Muslim people, of Arabs, really not Muslim back then, but Arabs. The Arabs that were dwelling in Jerusalem, the word there for dwelling in, in the Greek means to um, basically inhabit or to settle is the word, is to, to settle in Jerusalem. So from that time forward, you have these Arabs, you have Christians, you have Jews. That never changed. But you know, you have the um, from 1517 to 1917, you have the Ottoman Empire. They come in in Israel. That's when you see Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is very much at the heart of a lot of this conversation, is Al-Aqsa Mosque. Um, and you see this becoming the holy site. But from 1917 to 1948 is the British mandate. And the British mandate was Israel, but parts of Jordan. In 1948, right after the Holocaust, you know, you have all these Jewish yeah. people that are displaced. They don't know where to go. They actually sent them, I don't know if you know this, they sent them to America on ships. And America said, no, 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 no room. Sorry, no room. And the UN said, what are we gonna do with these people? And then someone suggests, Let's take them back to where their original home was. So 1948, Israel becomes a nation for the you know, first right. time in 2000 years, not for the first time in history, first time in 2000 years. Before that, it was not called Palestine. Now, this has nothing to do with the people. I'm just trying to explain this was not called Palestine as a country, but as a region. Yeah. The region was called Palestine. So Jewish people may, when, may have called themselves, I'm a Jewish Palestinian. Right. So I, I just want people to kind of understand the region of it. So, you know, in that time, uh, we had the first Palestinian war in 1948. That was not a war between Palestinians and Jews. First Palestinian war was the region of Palestine went to war. 
Britain pulls out, sort of like if America pulled out of Hawaii. If America pulled out of Hawaii, suddenly there'd be like a scramble. It wouldn't just be that Hawaii owned Hawaii. There'd be a scramble of other nations. So there was a scramble of other nations. Jordan ends up winning and occupying territory uh, in the east, uh, in East Jerusalem, West Bank. So they they you know they occupy this territory. Jordan has. Some of the conflict, which we'll talk about later, is there were Jewish families living in East yeah. Jerusalem when Jordan occupied. And Jordan said to the Jews, get out. And they said to the Palestinians that were looking for homes that were in West Jerusalem, come on over here. And, and that's where we kind of have some of this complication. So 1967, Six-Day War happens. Israel wins the lands back from Jordan that Jordan had been occupying. That includes East Jerusalem. I mention all that because a lot of the seat of conflict right now is East Jerusalem. It's important to note that majority of Palestinians and Jews, Arabs, Muslims, Christians, Jews live in peace together in Israel. 60% of Northern Israel is Arab. 60%. So majority is actually Arab. So, and these people all get along. So um, it's been a melting pot. I know that's a lot of information. I know we have a lot of questions, but this stuff goes back really, really far. Yeah. All right. I'm passing, passing the baton. <laughs> <laughs> to me? Are you passing the baton to me? To you, to you. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Pastor Jenny. And, you know, much of that history, I think, is so helpful to know. And I fundamentally believe in the historic ties of the Jews to the land. You know, your conversation about how there has been a remnant of the Jewish people in the historic land of Israel, um, you know, for thousands of years is absolutely true. And one of the things I think people need to really understand is that often in the context of the church, we don't quite get the history right, or we pick and choose little pieces of the history, right. which, you know, to some degree, because this is a short conversation today, we'll have to do that for the sake <laughs> of time. Yeah. Um, but one of the false beliefs often is that this conflict was ordained by God because of the sons of Abraham being ordained to be in conflict with one another. The belief that you know the Jews are the children of Isaac and the Arabs are the children of Ishmael. And there's wonderful, wonderful books about this. But if we just go back to the scriptures, even when um, Ishmael and his mother Haggai were um, put out into the wilderness, you know, his mother cries out to God, Hagar, sorry. And yeah. Yes. Um, and when she cries out to God, God does not ignore her. God right. hears her cry. He reveals himself to her. And so, you know, you can follow the story of the sons of Abraham in the scriptures. And you see that when Abraham dies, Isaac and Ishmael are side by side burying yeah. their father. Hmm. So I think it's really important for us to understand this is a contemporary geopolitical conflict that has to do with lots of aspects of history and some of the things you were talking about, Jenny, in terms of ownership and those different touch points. And I think it's also, I'm just emphasizing a couple of points that I heard you say, the fact that at the end of the Second World War and as the world was um, becoming increasingly aware of the Shoah and the horrors against the Jewish people in the Holocaust, if the state of Israel had not been established, the Jewish people would have had no place to go. Yeah. And the U.S. is culpable in that. It was anti-Semitism of the world mm -hmm. after the Holocaust that contributed yeah. to significant 
um, you know, immigration to Israel, yeah. even though the goal of reestablishing Israel as a Jewish state had started much, much earlier, right. decades earlier, late 19th century. So you have 1948, and I'll just pick up on two of the dates yeah. I heard you mentioned. 1948 for the Jewish people is viewed as a miracle that the state of Israel could be reestablished. The United States acknowledges the establishment of the state of Israel, you know, within eight minutes, uh, the, the, one of the first first uh, nations in the world to do so. Um, and it was a miracle for the Jewish people. And I think the part of the story we often don't hear is, well, what about the one million people? Uh, they were not uh, a nation state of Palestine. They were living in historic Palestine as a geographic designation. But there were one million people who were living in that land prior to the establishment of the state who were Arab. They now self-identify as Palestinian. Right, right. And one of the results of that war was the displacement of three quarters of that population from the homes that they had been living in prior to that war. And so what the Jewish people call a miracle, which it was, is called by the Palestinians a Nakba, which yeah. in Arabic means catastrophe. And so many will say it all started in 48, and then it depends on whose perspective or which narrative you're looking at in terms of, was this a miraculous 1948 or was this a catastrophe in 1948? And that problem of the Palestinian refugees has never been resolved by the world. So just as the Jews were rejected by the world, the Palestinian refugees have been as well. That refugee population today is more than 5 million Palestinian refugees, many of whom have been refugees not just from 1948, but again in 1967. Men, many are being displaced, you know, even again. And so we could certainly talk about all of those challenges. Fast forward to 1967, you have this young state of Israel, the 25% of that Arab population uh, is in what became the state of Israel. So that population today is the Arab citizens of Israel or Palestinian citizens of Israel. So when you talk about Israelis today, 20% are Palestinian and then 80%, the vast majority of course are Jewish. And so in 1967, you have the next major war as Pastor Jenny just described. And Israel won the war in six days. And as you mentioned, took control of the West Bank, took control of the Golan, took control of Sinai. And one of the challenges that has also been unresolved is specifically that territory we say East Jerusalem, the West Bank, and Gaza, is what is the status of that territory? Israel had a few choices. They could annex it, and they did that with parts of Jerusalem. Um, and according to international law, if you win a war, that is a, an appropriate, you know, you can annex the land, but then you are responsible for the people in it. And Israel did not decide to annex the all of the land, uh, specifically now I'm talking about the West Bank and mm. Gaza. And so the, the international definition of that territory today that started in 1967 is a term called the occupied territories. It includes the Golan, which 
the world internationally prior to President Trump identified the Golan as occupied territory. President Trump uh, shifted U.S. policy in that regard. But East Jerusalem and the West Bank and Gaza, according to international law, are considered occupied. And I'll just say one word about that, what that means, and then we can you know, certainly move on from the history. But in terms of um, the occupied Palestinian territories, what that means for Palestinians living there is that they are not protected by civil law and that they do not have a state. So there is a Palestinian authority that has limited control, and it has, we won't get into the details of area A, B, and C, and the complexities of the West Bank and all of that. Um, but for a Palestinian uh, living in specifically the West Bank, they're actually under military law because mm. it is controlled by the Israeli military. Now, that's a very concise, you know, we could go into a lot more details of what that means and how it looks differently in Palestinian cities and in different areas of the West Bank. But that's some of what you hear being, you know, the Palestinians would say that's one of the root issues that has not yet been resolved. Can we just talk on, because, you know, I think I might have a different perspective than you do yeah. on Occupy, but I think it's good to talk about it because I sure. think we know what occupied territory means. The church we pastor is from Israel, and we yeah. actually have Palestinian congregations and Israeli congregations. We have Arab congregations. You know, we have different, we have a mix of congregations. So we have congregations in Palestine. They refer to, this is them, not me, not American, not us. When they're referring to occupied territory, they mean it's land that's owned by Israel, but occupied by like, for example, West Bank, I'm sorry, Gaza is occupied by Hamas. That is why, so when they're saying free Gaza, they're saying freeing it from the occupation of the Gazans. This is Palestinians and Jews, but in America, there is this idea that occupied means that Israel is occupying Gaza, which is, I always thought that. I always thought that because that just that I don't know if no, maybe no one else thought that I thought that's what they meant. It's occupied Gaza. Well, when when it was pointed out to me, someone said, well, how is it Israel occupying when Israel's not allowed to go there? They don't ever they're not ever allowed to cross the border. How can Israel be occupying when there's no Israelis? There's no Jews. There's not a single Jew or Israeli in Gaza. So how is Israel occupying it? The government is run by, you know, by Hamas. Um, you know, I know personally people in the government. So I know that like financial aid, like I know that the, uh, you, you, what's the word I'm looking for? Utilities. Utilities are covered by Israel. Like Israel sends the water, power, all that stuff comes from Israel. But other than that, Israelis are not allowed to cross into Gaza. Uh, Palestinians can cross into Israel, but like when we've gone there, if we go into Gaza or we go into Bethlehem, which by the way is Palestinian territory as well, yeah. a lot of people don't realize that with Bethlehem, um, like our one of our churches in Beth is churches is in Bethlehem, and we nobody from nobody with an Israeli passport can cross in there. So that's what's so funny about the concept of people thinking that Israel is occupying those territories, but it couldn't possibly be that they can't physically even go in there. So really it's well, Israel's controlling those territories though. So um, it's not true that people from Gaza can leave Gaza. They can't leave Gaza without Israeli permission. Yeah, they, right. With permission. True. They can yeah. with permission is what I meant. They're allowed to with permission. And very, very few yeah. permits are given. And it's a huge, huge issue. Sometimes permits are given for medical care. But in general, the two million plus people that are living in Gaza cannot leave. 
Um, and I think, you know, one of the clarifications I would say, and, you know, I certainly don't want to speak on behalf of Israelis or on behalf of Palestinians, but my understanding of the majority of the Palestinian perspective is that the reason they would say Gaza is occupied is because it's controlled. The sea the sea border is completely controlled by the Israeli military. There are fences and walls that are completely controlled by the Israeli military. And so it's not physically occupied, but according to the law of war and international law, because Israel won that territory in a war, it's responsible for it and should either annex it or release it. And there's certainly security issues to be addressed and discussed. And so, you know, I know it's not as simple as, um, you know, sometimes the conversation of end the occupation is a term that may be utilized and what that means and what that looks like, excuse the expression, the devil's in the details. Um, right. But I, I think, you know, that's a, a bit of um, some alternative perspective, perhaps. Yeah, you know, I think that's interesting. I'm just saying that's what our Western perspective is. It's just when you talk to someone in Israel, like physically on the ground, they go, oh, no, people under here understand the occupation is like, at least in Gaza, I mean, our, our guest last night, you know, he said in Gaza, it is that the, that the Hamas is occupying it and the people. So their fight there is to get the people free from Hamas. I mean, there was a lot of conversation, Joe, you got to hear some of that, yeah. last, that conversation. And this is the pastor that is the pastor over Palestinian churches. And yeah. that conversation is we have got to be thinking about these people that are literally being held captive. He equated it to like the Nazis, what the Nazis did, you know, and what North Korea is like that are being well, held I, in Gaza. My perspective is based on what you both have said is now I understand why it's so complicated in the West yeah. Bank. I get it. I completely yeah. get it because you have sort of control, but not. So that, uh, that would totally allow for, you know, the vacuum. So then Hamas can easily get in because, because there's kind of control, not control. And then that's where the power vacuums come in. So now that is the first time, and I appreciate you both saying, I get it. I get why that region is so complicated because, because it's not totally anyone's. I get it. So, and this is for either one of you, because this is, this is really great. I think just having this conversation so we can all begin to even understand. Because I think what we, we see on the news, what we hear everywhere, I, I don't know that we really are getting the the understanding that you guys are given to us. So Jenny, maybe you could uh, just tell us a little bit about the recent conflicts um, and the reasons behind all this, what, what your understanding is of it. Well, there were several things that led up to this recent conflict. Mm -hmm. You know, um, the last conflict was uh, in 2014, I believe. Um, right now, the recent one, for one, it's Ramadan. And you can read the many, 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 many wars that take place in Ramadan. So before the Ramadan, you had, as I was starting to talk about before, this land dispute. That was one of the big parts of it. So the reason I laid out the timing, that is, it, and this is where it does come to people. And this is where, Joseph, when you were saying, I get that it's difficult, this to me is such a broad picture of the difficulties. So before 1948, you know, these Jewish families owned land in East Jerusalem. When Jordan occupied that territory, they told, as I was saying before, these, they told there was Palestinian families, come here, we will give you these homes, but you have to give your, your refugee status. So they do, they're given these homes, but Jordan never gave these families the title or the deed to these properties. Now, the fault really lied with Jordan in this. 
So then in 1967, when Israel gets the land, East Jerusalem back, they say, they put out, the Knesset puts out a law and says, if you owned land before 1948, uh, sorry, did I say 47 before 48, anything reverts back. Okay, if you still have the title. So since 1967, these homes, this area um, that's been in Sheikh Jarrah that you're hearing about has been mm -hmm. talked about. It's been disputed. There's been, okay, so what's hard about this is you have families that have lived there for more than 50 years, 75 years. They've raised their children there. They've had their families there. They may have had weddings there. They've had their holidays there, but they don't own it. So the deal was worked out that they would just start paying rent on it. That was the deal that was worked out with the families that own it. And so basically what has happened is the, the, the Supreme Court finally ruled that they do not own these lands, that the families that want to take the, the lands back legally have the right to. So it's a difficult situation. It was like if you were squatting in somebody's house, but somebody gave you that house. They said, oh, yeah, you can have my house. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm leaving. You can have it but they never gave you the deed. And then the granddaughter shows up one day and goes, well, this, this house is mine. And that person goes, I I've lived here for 50 years. Well, the courts, what would they say? Well, let's see the title, let's see the deed. Yeah. So it's so difficult because you have the law that's actually, it's law legally, these Jewish families and the company that they gave it to have the right, but then you have families. So you have that difficulty. So you had the protests going on for that. That leads up to Ramadan. You have the stuff at the Temple Mount, but then you add to it. Last Monday was Al-Quds. Now, Al-Quds basically is, is Jerusalem. Al-Quds is the day that the, the, the Muslims basically say Jerusalem will be ours. But sure. that same day was Jerusalem Day. Jerusalem Day celebrates what happened in 1967 when Israel won Jerusalem back from from Jordan, those coincided on the exact same day. So while Israel is celebrating, like Dr. May said so beautifully before, while they're celebrating victory, you've got the Muslims and, and, and the Palestinians saying, no, this is our land. And, 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 and they're mourning what they've lost. And you had this the exact same day. You add that to that, you know, we're during Ramadan. You add to that what happened with the family. You add to that an Israeli government that can't get their act together, that has not been formed, which, by the way, there are Arabs uh, and Palestinians that are allowed to serve in the Israeli government. But it's just I could go so much more into it. But it's just the government is a mess right now. So at that moment, it seemed like this is the perfect time. So Hamas used this opportunity. You know, since last week, in one week, there's been 3,500 rockets yeah. that have been fired from uh, Gaza into Jerusalem. So the first strike, people need to understand the very first rocket did come from Gaza last Monday. And so it's been 30, over 3,500, I believe, since Monday. So that's kind of a lot. And yet still, it's a bit of a nutshell. <laughs> Well, and I think jumping in, if that's your history of Shekshara, um, I, I would agree in terms of um, the process. I think what most people, particularly, I mean, I didn't understand this. And then I went and got, you know, a doctorate and I still am learning about the details. What most people don't understand is that just what you described in terms of if you have the paper, if you have the permission, if you have the legal, you know, justification, um, most people don't understand that privilege in large part is afforded to Jews over Palestinians. And so let me just say the settlers that are moving into those homes in Shakshara, you know, many of them uh, don't have the papers either. They don't have, they don't have to get permits to build that there's this privilege that's given to 
uh, the term Jewish, you know, Jewish residents who are living in land that has been designated to be a future Palestinian state, um, you know, are, are given permission to build and are given permits, whereas Palestinians are not. And so one of the cries of the Palestinian people is, how do we do it legally? If we're, if we're always going to apply for permits and never get permits, you know, how are we able to build? How are we able to grow? Where are we supposed to live? You know, if we are living in the West Bank and the West Bank isn't, you know, the future state of Palestine and the West Bank also isn't Israel, then we're literally a people without a country. Um, and so I think that adds to the struggle. And, and I also just would say, um, I have had the privilege of spending time in Gaza. And Gaza would be as beautiful as the Riviera of the Mediterranean if it were not for you know this epic war between these two peoples. Mm -hmm. It is a beautiful, beautiful place. But the other thing is that the people are incredibly beautiful. They are mm -hmm. hospitable people. They are mothers who want to raise their children without having to worry, just as Israeli mothers feel. You know, they don't want Israeli mothers don't want to have to worry about rocket fire, and mothers in Gaza don't want to have to. Worry worry about the Israeli military, you know, bombing. And so the disproportionate effect of this recent violence on civilians in Gaza cannot be ignored. In the last week, more than 60 Palestinian children in Gaza were killed. And, you know, when I think of Jesus, and I think of Jesus saying, welcome the little children, certainly he would welcome the Jewish children, and he would welcome the Palestinian children too. The lack of ability to be able to build, you know, these permits, these permissions, just the way Gaza needs permission to travel in and out of Gaza, you know, Palestinians in the West Bank need permission. Many of them used to work in Israel. Israel is the primary economy there, etc. And so they have to have permits to be able to travel in and out. And they travel through checkpoints. And, you know, I've heard people say that the checkpoints are just like going through security at the airport, which one is traumatic enough, but two, it's much, much more severe than that. And I so been, I've been through them, I guess. I you know, and, and they can be, um, I have been through checkpoints where I was harassed by Israeli soldiers because I was traveling with Palestinians. And, you know, that's a dynamic I've witnessed firsthand and called really horrible things. And so I think it's important for us to acknowledge there is certainly uh, racism, there is certainly hatred on both sides. Um, but the vast majority of people I know in Israel, in Pal the Palestinian territories, even in Gaza, the vast majority don't hate the other. They Correct. might hate the other's government. <laughs> they might, you know, hate the political realities. Um, and I think the politics in some way is where we largely get stuck. You know, you had the peace agreement of the Oslo Accords. You had willing actors. I mean, Yasser Arafat put down his gun to be able to pursue peace. You know, that was not his initial approach by any means, you know, but agreed to this peace agreement as did Itzhak Rabin. And many people don't know when Itzhak Rabin was assassinated, it was not by a Palestinian extremist. It was by a Jewish extremist who said, no, we're not willing to compromise. And so you know, this man of peace, Itzhak Rabin, you know, was given the Nobel Peace Prize, you know, was one of the leaders of Israel who said, we're going to make peace with the Palestinians. He was killed by an extremist Jew. And so I think, you know, that I think the extremists are the exception to the rule, but they often are the ones that get the headline. Now I want to turn to 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 the rockets and a little bit about the military. The question is what the world sees is maybe this disproportionate response. And I understand what they see. I see what the visuals are. How do we judge this if they are in fact trying to protect life, if they're notifying people, if they're saying, in a, and I've heard that 
a lot of the civilian casualties may in fact be Hamas rockets that don't fire correctly and land in their territory and kill people because they're launching from those areas and using um, residential areas to launch. So I would say, tell me what your perspective and your knowledge base is then I will say on that because I, I that's what I've learned so far. <laughs> Well, maybe I'll start and then yes, um, please. No, and, that, yeah. and I'm not a military expert by any means. Absolutely. So in, in that regard, I won't be talking about you know, the type of ballistics or anything like that. But um, may I just start out by saying I personally am one who believes in nonviolence, who believes in the sure. power of change by nonviolence. And the organization I lead, Churches for Middle East Peace, we don't support you know, any violent, you know, response. Uh, and so we're calling for a ceasefire. The bottom line is calling for a ceasefire. It's in the best interest of Israel. It's in the best interest of the Palestinians. And so we need to acknowledge the thousands of rockets that are going into Israel. And I was just telling my husband last night, I was watching the news and watching some video clips, the military technology of what's called the Iron Dome Protection System. It dismantles, however it works in terms of yeah, the military yeah. expertise, 90% of the rockets uh, being fired into Israel, which is part of why you see the death toll being so relatively small. You have more than 10 deaths, uh, but not much more than that in Israel proper. In the Palestinian, um, you know, in Gaza, the death toll right now is more than 200 people. And as I mentioned, more than 60 children. And I do think some of the things I heard you say, Joseph, you know, I've heard, I just had a meeting this morning and we did an interview with a humanitarian worker in Gaza. He is Gazan. Uh, he's, you know, lived there his whole life. Um, and he was just saying, sometimes that is true that there are um, warnings given, but his, uh, the family physician was just killed with three others of his family members as a part of the bombing. And he said, you need to understand that people we know and love are being killed, you know, while they're having dinner at their table. And hmm. so, and I don't want to, I don't know the mind of the Israeli military. You know, we've heard, we know disproportionate response is a military tactic that is, that is employed by Israel. So the disproportionate response is a technical term, you know, that, that has been used. So, you know, if Israel is attacked, they will attack four times more in a disproportionate response as a mechanism, you know, as a tactical approach okay. to the conflict. And so I can't speak to the motivation. All I can say is that the people in Gaza have nowhere to go. You have more than 50,000 people already who've been displaced from their homes from the current bombing. Some of the deaths may certainly be because the rocket fire in Gaza is not very sophisticated, which then, you know, you also need to think if it's not sophisticated enough that it's causing damage to their own people, it's also not very sophisticated to cause damage to Israel, right? I mean, you know, if that's true, um, which doesn't minimize in any way the rocket fire going no, into well, Israel. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm against it completely. You know, my plea is just the desperate, uh, the disproportionate and hmm. desperation of the people there who are so affected um, because they have no other place to go. And I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I love it. You know, I think the conversation always needs to lead to people. We said that in the beginning. And, yes. uh, you know, I've, had, you know, you guys know I lived in Israel. I've had Palestinian friends. I've had Jewish friends. So I really do try to see the people. The struggle I have is that unless I've been lied to by pastors, my pastor that's over me, unless he's full face lying to me, it's a totally different story than what the media is putting out. So that gives me a bit of a struggle. You got right. the lead pastors in Israel that are lying to their people. What do you do about that? 
if that's what I believe. And I don't believe they're lying because they are serving. Uh, if you listen to that program, as we were talking about today, Joseph, Firm Fellowship of Israeli-Related Ministries, their whole focus is where can we serve? And they're putting together a response packet for Palestinians mm -hmm. and for Jews. When I lived there, I remember seeing pictures that were doctored of Palestinians carrying their dead children that Israelis supposedly killed. And then when you zoom in on a picture, you see it's Magen David. And it's actually not at all in Palestine. Again, David is the uh, the uh, the ambulance and stuff in, in Israel. Yeah. And the information I'm getting from people that are in the military, that are in our churches, that are talking to our pastors. So you have to understand this is this is not just a political opinion for me. This unravels my this would unravel everything I'm connected to if they're lying. And I think they're it's not lying. I think that all of us need a little unraveling. I think yeah, we don't I, see it. We don't see it across the line. I want to finish my, yeah, I was yes, wrong. Yeah, please, I don't mean to interrupt. Yeah. Yes, please. What I'm receiving from that is that pamphlets are, are before every rocket, pamphlets are airdropped to say this area is going to be bombed. What I've received from them is that this military, as Joseph mentioned, and many sources have confirmed this, not just ours, many sources. They go in from door to, they send people from door to door, and they say, they have operatives that go and say, get out of this area. What we have, you know, this information that's been confirmed, many, many, you know, things is that the satellites tap into people's phones and send text. If you were in this area, a bomb is going to come. Now, the arguments against that say, why would anybody militarily do that? That's foolishness. Well, sure. Because Israel's point is not to harm civilians. What Israel's point is, is stop the rockets. Stop the rockets. So they go to the ammunition factories. What the Palestinians in Gaza, that, I shouldn't even say that, what Hamas, let me remove that. What Hamas does not the Palestinians in Gaza, Hamas does, is they put their ammunitions factories in schools. They put them in hospitals. There's satellite pictures. This is not made up mm -hmm. information. This is undeniable information. They're in hospitals. They're in uh, daycare centers. They're in schools. And they're in uh, people's, like their offices are actually in residential areas because they know that the more casualties they have, Hamas, the better it is for their cause. And so, you know, they're what the story that we know from people that are, again, getting this information is the billions of dollars that are filtered to give financial aid. Like we talked about before, Israel is responsible for the people there. So billions of dollars are given to Gaza and Hamas takes that money and makes rockets with it. Every rocket is, is cost $50,000 to make. So do the math of how many rockets have been shot it just in the past week how many millions of dollars have been spent that actually if you care about people in gaza then let's get hamas out of the picture that are taking billions of dollars from feeding their children from clothing their women and their men and helping them what hamas goes and does is tells the people when these warnings come don't you dare leave you stay in this building and you die for a lot. And we've got that on, on, on record from both Palestinian families and, and from the people that we know, in, you know in, on the Israel side that say, yes, Hamas wants it because it makes their cause look better. So that's what bothers me is when we don't see those pictures. It bothers me when we want to, when, when you look at the condemnation against Israel by the UN, when you realize that ISIS has never once, ISIS, never once been condemned by the UN that Al-Qaeda has never once by the UN ever been condemned. And yet Israel's been condemned 90 times. How do you not see 
that there is an anti-Semitic root to so much of this. 90 times, I've seen the commercials, I've seen the commercials of Mickey Mouse that's saying in Arabic, you know, kids, all the Jews are bad, kill them. I've seen those commercials. I've seen the cartoons, I mean, not commercials, I've seen the cartoons. I know that there is a messaging that's going out that is creating not peace, that is creating a desire for war. Because if you plant an idea in somebody's head that somebody hates you, if you plant that idea every day, they're gonna develop hate in their heart. So I say all that to say, yes, we have to do something, to what, but just, like letting Hamas do it and then going, oh, bad Israel, you're bad. And that's what the world stage is doing right now. It is condemning Israel for protecting itself. When Israel is the most humanitarian about the way they do war. I don't know a single country that would drop leaflets. I don't know a single country that would warn people and say bombs are coming in. But Israel has, and yet they're condemned as being so horrible. And that's what bothers me. That's what gets me upset. Go ahead, Carolyn. You know, Jay, well, I'm just sitting here. This is great for me because, of course, I'm hearing all this stuff. I just wanted to sit and listen today because it, it's so good just to hear you both, you know, talk because you both have been there. I've never been there. So I, I'm only talking from other things. But I want to bring this back to the spiritual, to the Bible. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's where you always mm -hmm. got to yeah, come back to as a Christian. And, and for me, you know, the Bible's very clear to us as Christians, that we are to stand beside Israel. I I'd love for you, Jenny, just as a pastor, mm -hmm. talk about that a little bit and what that means. Tell me, break that down a little bit for us as Christ followers. What what does that mean for us? Well, I'm going to give you a little probably different perspective than you're thinking. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's on Sunday, that you know, God really gave me a new revelation. I'm praying for the peace of Jerusalem. It's not about praying for a specific group of people. And I think as Christians, we've actually misinterpreted that. Yes. We've interpreted that as pray for the peace of Jerusalem is pray for the Jews. Well, for Almost a thousand years or over a thousand years, there weren't Jewish, you know, that was not the majority of people there. Yeah. We already established it. It was, you know, it's been Muslims, it's been Jews, it's been Christians. So pray for the peace of Jerusalem doesn't necessarily mean stand by Israel. Okay, so I'd, I'm saying it's surprising because that's opposite to what you might think that I'd be saying. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem is genuinely praying for all the people in Jerusalem because yes. the Bible calls it a trembling cup. Amen, Pastor Jimmy. <laughs> it is a trembling cup. Well, and that's why it was so important what did happen on Pentecost. That's why I think it's so interesting that this is happening around Pentecost when the first gift of the Spirit was speaking in tongues to languages that were Arabic, you know, Arabic tongues and Muslim, you know, uh, future, you know, Muslim uh, territories uh, was the, the languages. And so um, they were dwelling there. And there's been these people, again, we started that way. So praying for the peace of Jerusalem, standing by Israel is really standing by the people that are calling, that are in this nation, all the people. So, you know, God really put that on my heart this weekend is that I think we've been saying that wrong. We may be saying pray for the peace of Jerusalem, but we're thinking pray for the Jewish people in Jerusalem. And we need to be praying for all of those, East Jerusalem, West Jerusalem, because Definitely at the heart of it. There are people in the center. They need a home. There is there is this cosmic battle that is just constantly taking place for thousands of years. This is not new. There's, there's no mistake to me that all the religions think the same place. Literally the same ground is yeah. where they begin. I mean, I've just, I was like, there's no way that that's a coincidence. <laughs> you know, so. I love, love, love what you just said. And I was hoping that we would talk a bit about the Bible. And I, I have just three or four verses I want to share. And it's a little bit like what you were just sharing, Jenny. This is from the book of Joshua, chapter five. So Joshua was near Jericho 
he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or are you for our enemies? Which is the question we're asking right now. Are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the angel of God responded, neither, but as a commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence, which means that this wasn't just an angel, that this was a reflection of God because they didn't worship angels. So Joshua fell face down in reverence and asked, what message does my Lord have for his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so, which I think is a good word for us because, you know, we're talking about war. We're talking about battle. Joshua expected that he was going to enter into this land in battle. This angel was going to fight on his behalf. And the angel said, you know, and Joshua said, are you for me or are you against me? And the angel of the Lord says, neither, but the land that you are standing on is holy. There is no doubt in my mind that God wanted Israel back as a nation. First of all, you know, it's it's part of prophetic time clock. It, it's part of the timeline. It needs to happen. And when you look at things like the Six Day War and you look at 1948, like you said before, I mean, there was no doubt this is miraculous. There was no doubt that there was God's hand in this. And so right. that is one side we do where I do believe standing with Israel Carolyn is important because it's very clear. God says that Israel is the apple of his eye. So there is something to that. Like we can step back and go, okay, God, you were working, at least in my opinion, maybe I'm wrong. But when you see a war like that, that people that weren't a people, you know, the word says that people that weren't a people uh, talks about that. Well, these people weren't a people and they were able to win victoriously. The other important thing, Carolyn, is not even biblical, but politically speaking, Israel is, is the only nation uh, it, it really that does welcome, like, you know, if you go to Jordan, Christians and Jews can't really live in, you know, uh, name some of the other countries in the other areas without persecution. Christians, Jews, and Muslims do live, for the most part, as we've talked about, in peace in Israel. And it's one of the only, it's really the only nation in the Middle East that you have that. You know, I, I, um, I left this conversation this morning with this humanitarian worker in Gaza, and my heart was just wrenched. It was just wrenched. And, you know, I think, you know, Jenny, as you talk about your pastor and as you talk about some of the things I've talked about, you know, you don't think they're lying. I don't think they're lying. I think that you have such isolation and such differences and such vast chasms between, you know, different people groups in different geographic uh, areas in Israel and the Palestinian territories that the vast majority of people in Tel Aviv have no idea what life is like you know, for Palestinians in Bethlehem, let alone for Palestinians in Gaza and vice versa. You know, and I think there's wonderful, wonderful people in Israel doing great, great work who care deeply about you know, humanitarian work and justice. And, you know, our call at this moment and, you know, when this airs, maybe there will be a ceasefire. But the call is for a ceasefire because civilians are being disproportionately affected. Right. And then that some of these root issues in the conflict where there hasn't been resolution. What in the world do you call the territory of the West Bank? Is it Judea and Samaria as a part of Israel or is it the future state of Palestine? Until that is resolved, the two million plus people that live there, you know, including the half a 
the half a million Israeli, you know, settlers of Israel who live in the West Bank, um, there will be this unresolved conflict. And so my hope is we'll continue to learn, to listen to people who have alternative perspectives um, and to see maybe, you know, that prayer of the churches in Revelation, uh, give us ears to hear and give us eyes to see what's really happening there and what reality is like. I think that we've demonstrated the complexity of the issue today. I think we've demonstrated that there are certainly um, emotions tied to things. There are certainly history. But I want to say most importantly that we all know that Jesus is ultimately the Prince of Peace, the ultimately our God that that continues to guide us toward that peace and that wisdom. And we pray to Jesus and we pray for the, for, for the peace in the land. We pray for his sovereignty to come over that land. And we pray that we can implore our wisdom and truth to help in whatever ways we can. And we thank you for watching today on The Full Life. We thank you all for your contributions. And we'll see you next time for more conversations. For more information on King of Kings Ministries and King of Kings Community Los Angeles, visit these websites. And for more information on churches for Middle East peace, go to cmep.org or connect with Rev. Dr. Mayalise Cannon on her social media handles.